0: welcome to true green and gold where we talk all things elks i'm joined today by a special guest this is steve bolin co-founder of the amateur agency former compatriot writer on last word on cfl he's a big writers fan so i brought him on for this week's matchup while we got back to back with the writers coming up this week how you doing tonight steve
1: uh, I'm doing fantastic, Josh. I'm super excited to be on here and uh, definitely remember our days uh, writing together on Last Word on CFL. It wasn't too long ago, actually, so uh, definitely been an interesting season and uh, I'm excited to chat some CFL ball with you.
0: Definitely. Well, I have a personal question to lead off with. So how did you discover the CFL and become a Riders fan?
1: Yeah, so this one, it's kind of more one of the straightforward stories, I guess, you'll get of a, a, a fan becoming a fan of a team in the league. My uh, my dad and his entire side of the family is from uh, Saskatchewan, more specifically Gravelburg, Saskatchewan, a very small town. And so growing up, uh, you know, they bled green and that was kind of their their thing. And so I believe I went to my first Rider game in 2000. I would have been four years old. And I don't remember that one very well. But then, from about 2006 to 2011, we went to every Labor Day Classic. We back then, you were able to like my uh, uncles and aunts would be able to exchange their season tickets for like a big block. And about like my dad had seven brothers, by the way. So our cousins, uncles, aunts, we'd all roll into Old Taylor Field. And um, the one I remember the most was 2007 uh, when Kerry Joseph ran up the middle against the Winnipeg Blue Bombers to win the game. Think it was like a 20 or 30 yard run for for the touchdown, and uh, ever since then 2007, 2006 ish, uh, I've been hooked and I've uh, bled green from that day.
0: Gotcha, that's a great story. Love it when it's a family affair. If you have not realized this by how I talk, I'm in an American, so the CFL is a bit of an odyssey for me, obviously. I grew up watching the NFL, but in college, I went to the University of Missouri and James Franklin was the quarterback there whenever I was attending. Met him in college. He was a really good guy. And I guess I kind of knew of the CFL, but didn't really follow it all that much. But after Franklin had a cup of coffee with the Lions, he went up north of the border. And I was like, well, I like him. So I guess I'll root for Edmonton now. And I liked the name the Eskimos at the time. We'll get to more on the name change later, but yeah, I can't say it was a family affair. It was just somewhat of an individual thing. I could have been anybody, but yeah, ended up being Edmonton. I like the green and gold colors, so, you know, it all worked out in the end. Except for the fact I really started paying attention in earnest in about 2016, and, well, things have not been great since then, so... We won't get into all that because everybody knows all of that history. My next question regarding your writers more specifically, what's been your impression of Cody Fajardo this year? His numbers for the year aren't eye-popping. I think he has 10 touchdowns to 9 picks. He's among the league leaders in passing yards, kind of because he's been one of the few that stayed healthy all season. So do you think that he has played – better than his numbers suggest worse than his numbers suggest or about what his numbers would suggest.
1: I think with Cody, what you see is what you're getting right now. And, and right now he's playing like an average quarterback. Uh, we've seen across the CFL that, you know, offense is down altogether. I mean, you have guys like Bolivar Mitchell, who uh, I've contended for a while is, you know, in the running, uh, you know, if he plays for another nine, 10 years to be the greatest quarterback of all time and he right now is sitting at like what nine touchdowns, 13 interceptions so, I mean, that right there tells me that it, it's been a weird year passing wise. Like we're not seeing that high flying excitement we're used to seeing uh, for Cody specifically. It's been a bit disappointing. I remember being very optimistic when we hired Jason Moz back in early 2020, obviously before the 2020 season was canceled. And I thought he'd bring out the best in Fajardo. I, I never liked Moz as a head coach, but I always knew he was like kind of an offensive guru. Um, and, you know, if you, take away, you know, maybe not the best, he's not the best leader, but if you just allow him to focus on the X's and O's, I mean, I was super stoked about that um, hire there and, you know, protection issues have certainly haven't helped the situation, but I actually uh, I'm in Calgary right now. It's where I'm uh, it's where I reside. And I was uh, at the first Saskatchewan Calgary game live. And it just seemed like Cody, you know, wasn't going through his progressions. And that was the game where afterwards he went off about the 50, uh, 50 deep balls and not connecting on them. But I mean, there was a couple of throws there where he just straight up missed his receivers. It was not his receivers, you know, lack of ability to go up and get the 50, 50 ball. It was, he had just plainly missed the throw. And so Um, you know, and he's just locking onto his first read and, and I'm no film guru. I wish we could get more all 24 film to actually kind of look at the full picture, but just based on what I saw that game, it just looked like a lot of first read throws. And again, that could be a protection issue, but from the flash that we saw in 2019, this has certainly been a disappointment. I think there's been a multitude of factors. I'm still a big supporter. I'm still behind Cody 100%. I'm not calling for Isaac Harker in any way or Paxton Lynch. But, uh, you know, I think just altogether offense has been down, but it's been especially disappointing because I think, um, you know, with a little better play out of Cody in certain games, they could certainly have a better record than seven and four, I think is what they currently have right now.
0: Yeah, it's true. Going off that a little bit, I was seeing articles in various websites that say CFL has an entertainment problem, that it's not the high-flying football that it used to be. I guess I kind of get what they're coming from, but it's. I think we just got to be patient with this. I figured coming off a missed year, everybody was going to be a little bit rusty. And I also thought that the league would kind of be really sandwiched in tight. I thought we'd see a lot of parity, a lot of upsets, and it it's kind of borne out that way except for the very top and the very bottom. Winnipeg is dominating everybody. Edmonton and Ottawa are terrible. Otherwise everybody else is in within two ish games of each other. 100%. Uh, With, yeah, like it's been, especially weird, just seeing like, I don't know what
1: I was thinking in the hindsight's 2020, but I had Winnipeg going like, Oh God, I had them going like maybe eight and six. I did not think that they were just going to run away with it like this. I thought they kind of hit a magic stride in 2019 and, uh, you know, I figured, you know, they 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 got they were the team that got hot, but they, what they did is not sustainable. And it turns out it is. And uh, you know, just kind of disappointed how the riders stumbled after their 3-0 start, especially those two losses against Winnipeg. That was especially tough. But you're right, it it is super top heavy right now. And then you have teams like Ottawa and uh unfortunately your Elks, who are uh, you know, kind of the basement dwellers
0: right now. Yep. Sam, so, moving on, what has been the biggest surprise you've seen from the Riders this season?
1: Uh, one of the more pleasant surprises has been the emergence of uh, Brady Linnaeus and, and Keen Schaefer-Baker, uh, young, talented receivers who stepped up. And, you know, I thought the Riders were dead in the water when Shaq Evans went down. But, uh, you know, they've stepped up. And it's been really cool to see that, like, just Canadian talent step up to the plate the way they have. And obviously, they went out and got Duke Williams because you know, whenever you, have an, whenever you have an opportunity to add talent like that, you go and do it. I don't think that's an indictment on who they have in that locker room right now. And then on defense, I would say Micah tights. I mean, losing Cameron judge and Solomon El-Mimian, um from the 2019 roster. I, I thought this linebacking corpse was like one of the worst in the league and, and tights has stepped up and they, they flipped uh pure before Edom got hurt. I believe he was playing some Sam linebacker, which I thought was a smooth transition. So Uh, you know, I was, uh, I'm really happy with how like those three guys, mainly tights uh, Schaefer Baker and Linnaeus have played Uh, definitely the most positive surprises in my opinion.
0: Gotcha. Yeah. It's kind of interesting. We have a swap of sorts of Edmonton and Saskatchewan guys who went to the NFL and now they've come back on the other side because Williams was in Edmonton before, then he went to the Buffalo bills. Now he's back in the CFL and we've got Derek Moncrief who, went to the Rams, Now's come back north of the border with Edmonton. And I've thought Moncrief has adjusted pretty well so far. And yeah, obviously Williams is going to be competing for touches in the Riders' offense. Cause Shaq Evans, like you mentioned, and a lot of playmakers you have on the outside. No, absolutely. I think he's definitely competing for touches and,
1: and I think it takes time to develop chemistry too. Like, You know, I was talking about Cody and those 50-50 deep balls. I mean, it's great that they got a guy that can go up and get those, but they also got to be in sync as well. And that's where Shaq and and Cody really connect well, Shaq Evans, that is. Uh, I worry about how quickly Williams and Cody can kind of develop that rapport. But I mean, I think when you have a guy as talented as Duke Williams and, you know, has that NFL kind of uh, swagger to him, I think you know, it should come together quite quickly. And if it doesn't, then I, like I said, the guys in that locker room,
0: I believe uh, can carry the weight. I can see that for sure. Now here comes the really big question. Do you think Saskatchewan could upset Winnipeg in the playoffs? And if not, who could?
1: Okay. So if right now I got my Homer hat on right vintage rider logo, if I keep that on hundred percent, yes, of course they could, but I flip that back around and I'm trying to be a rational fan, I'm leaning towards 75-25. No, they cannot pull the upset against Winnipeg. I just don't see them being able to score enough points on that defense, and what we're seeing out of that Winnipeg front seven right now and what they're doing to opposing offensive lines worries me very much on what they would do to Saskatchewan's offensive line. I'm a big fan of the pieces they got there. Dan Clark, Logan Furland, um, you know, some of the different guys they've added there, young Canadian guys, Um, Matland Riley, another one, but I, I just think they need time to grow and develop together. And when you're going to play a veteran, hungry, potentially all-time defense, such as what we're seeing out of this 2021 Winnipeg Blue Bombers team, I think they're just really going to struggle to put up points against Winnipeg, especially when it's going to be late November, early December that they're meeting. Um, you know, if Saskatchewan makes it out of the West semifinal. Uh, you know, Winnipeg on offense has such a well-balanced attack. I mean, we saw them after the Nichols injury in 2019 struggle with uh, Chris Stravler because they just lacked that passing attack. And Caleros came in, and, and it's just forcing defenses to respect both what they're able to do on the ground and his arm in the passing game. And he's rolling out, and he looks like 2015 Caleros pre-knee uh, injury, and it's it's been really, really just sickening for me to watch as a Riders fan, but as a football fan, it's been really cool to see how they put it together. So um I do think the Riders have the best chance at upsetting Winnipeg, but I don't think they can do it. So that's kind of where I'm standing right now. I think Winnipeg, it's Winnipeg's great cup to lose this year.
0: Yeah, I certainly think you've hit the nail on the head with that. It's so theirs to lose, but I'm thinking the team with the best chance to knock off Winnipeg in the playoffs would probably be Hamilton. Here's why Mm. I think that. Obviously, at the start of the year, they were struggling. They weren't healthy. But you've seen Masoli and Evans. Whoever's under center, they seem to be coming around. And I would say at this moment in time, they probably are going to stick with Masoli as their guy. So you have a team that is healthy And bent on revenge, could also play pretty good defense. I would give Hamilton the best chance. I'm not saying it's a good one, but I would say they had the best chance to pull it off.
1: I would agree. And I think uh, another thing, too, that we overlook is the coaching staff, right? Uh, you know, Hamilton has a very veteran coaching staff, um, you know, Tommy Condell and, and led by everyone there and, or sorry, Orlando uh, Steinauer. I think Tommy's the offensive coordinator, if I'm
0: not mistaken. Yeah, I think that's right.
1: Yeah. So they, you know, they got a good coaching staff there and, you know, I trust them to go up against Mike O'Shea and, and Winnipeg and Richie Hall. Uh, obviously they were outcoached in 2019, but I trust them Toronto, as we saw with Ryan Dinwiddie's, uh, you know, taking a knee when he shouldn't have taken a knee, uh, to try to kill the clock, not knowing BC still had a timeout left. You know, there's still mistakes being made there. I don't fully trust McLeod Bethel Thompson. I like McLeod Bethel Thompson. So I don't know if Toronto would be a team to do it out of the East. And, uh, you know, uh, Calgary's just been so hot and cold this year, but obviously the the addition of Reggie Bagleton could, could immensely help. But again, it's just Winnipeg just seems like such a powerhouse. I would probably agree. Hamilton has the next best shot and at least the best shot in the East. Uh, from an Eastern team perspective to take down Winnipeg.
0: Gotcha. Where do you think Saskatchewan ultimately ends up with the number two seed in the West?
1: I think, yeah, they end up with the number two seed in the West. I think their season ends in the West semifinal. They, I think they're going to lose to Calgary. Uh, their win against Calgary hasn't inspired me at all, really. Like it was, it was a very grimy win, a good character win. not every win's going to be pretty, but Uh, I think their two losses to Calgary showed me more than what that win showed me that they could potentially do. I know Saskatchewan would be at home and hosting the West semifinal. You'd have the 13th man, rabid fans, Bo Levi hasn't been playing great, but I mean, Kamar Jordan's been playing some of the best football on his career post that knee injury uh, that he suffered all the way back in 2018. And now they're adding Reggie Bagleton. uh, You got Hergie Mayala down there, uh, Colton Hunchak and that defense. I mean, God, they just added back, um, Oh God, Trey Roberson to go with uh, Deshaun Amos. Like, mm-hmm. I'm thinking about all that. The only weakness I can really see is on that offensive line, and then on the defensive line too. I mean, Sean Lemon's been kind of having a career revival there, but I don't know if they can generate consistent pressure. But I just worry that the Riders are going to peter out, and and Cody just hasn't shown, you know, that moxie that he had in 2019. That believes me, he can push this team past the West semifinal right now.
0: Yeah, I was kind of thinking that same thing, that Calgary, just with their veteran savvy, they just seem to have a better chance of beating Winnipeg than Saskatchewan would, I feel like. Obviously, their game early in the year, Renee Paredes missed that field goal in the last play of the game that would have knocked Winnipeg off, but, you know, cl- close only counts in horseshoes and hand grenades, so. That's how that went right. down, and... Bo Levi Mitchell, after a terrible start to the year, he's come around. So I would not underestimate a guy like that. And like you mentioned, getting the band back together, anything could happen with that.
1: A hundred percent agree. I, I think every year, like, and I used to be one of these people I would write off Calgary, like, okay, this has got to be the year they fall off. They've lost X, Y, Z. And you know, on the podcast, uh, my friends and I used to do, we, we got to chat with Kamara Jordan. He just spoke to the consistency in that culture. And I think people don't truly reflect on that. They always just look at the depth chart and assume that, you know, the next guy up, isn't going to be something to, to fear or ponder. And, and we're always proven wrong. So, you know, obviously this year, it looks like in some respects, the everything's come to roost, but I still wouldn't write them off, man. I mean, with Bo Levi Mitchell and and uh, Dave Dickinson, I mean, They they still got the two most important positions covered there, the head coach and the quarterback. So I mean, I'm I'm
0: not writing them off. I I'm very scared of them still. Fair enough. So now shifting over to the Elks a little bit. How would you characterize their play so far this season? Oh God,
1: it depends how much profanity you allow on this uh, podcast. But (laughs) honestly, try and keep
0: it PG thirteen.
1: I got you. I got you. Honestly. The first thing that came to my mind is I'm just utterly shocked on how bad they've been. I, in doing our preseason predictions, I think I had them finishing second or third in the West with an eight and six record. Um, I didn't anticipate, like you said, I thought everyone would kind of be more sandwiched in the middle. So I think I had the riders finishing first at like nine and four. And then I had Edmonton and Calgary tied for second, I believe at eight and six in my preseason predictions. And I thought with Trevor Harris and that connection with Jamie Elizondo and Darrell Walker and Greg Ellingson and, you know, just, uh, you know, I wasn't too aware of who was on that defense, but I figured that would kind of be covered for the most part. And honestly, just, just from that first game against Ottawa, something just didn't seem right. And, uh, you know, talk about culture and the culture Calgary has, and, you know, Edmonton had a chance to, you know, snag a piece of that last year. I think right before COVID hit, they could have hired Mark Killam before they hired Scott Milanovic, the special teams coordinator for Calgary. And, I thought maybe he would have been a better guy to try to build a culture. But I mean, you had a coach in Scott Milanovic who left before he even a down of CFL football was played. And then you mm-hmm. had Elizondo inserted there late. So, I mean, it's hard to build a culture. And I thought, you know, you you give him the benefit of the doubt and allow him time, but it just seems like between the COVID stuff and, you know, we talk about culture, it's become almost like a cliche word and the releasing of Kenny Stafford because he didn't fit the culture. And it's like, well, What culture are you trying to build there? Right. I mean, it's easy to throw that word around, but I think you have to live it and you really have to um, lead by example. And I'm just not sure the leadership team there has been. And that's trickled down to the play. And unfortunately, to, to the fan apathy we see in Edmonton now, it looks like no one's going to the games
0: anymore. Yeah, I think it's fair to say they're a dumpster fire right now. And I was trying to figure out where it went wrong myself, because you looked at it, and on paper, this team seemed to have a considerable amount of talent. Like we mentioned, from the start of the year, we had Trevor Harris, who I never thought he was an elite quarterback, but I always thought he was a good one. And then got James Wilder, who came over from the Argos. You looked like he had a really solid receiving core with Darrell Walker, who's just not gotten in any rhythm this year. Greg Ellingson and the rest of those guys. On defense, I thought at least our D line was going to be good. Got Kwaku Boatang, Jake Cerezna, Thomas Betts. Those guys, I think, will be fine. I was a little concerned on the back end and the secondary so far, my opinion, it's been up and down. Kind of like the pass rush, it's been up and down. I saw in the last game that we played. Edmonton led the CFL in yards allowed, but they were eighth in points allowed, and that mm. just tells you the biggest problem. It's been turnovers. So the only reason we lost the opener to the Red Blacks was the pick six, and you know, my thought after that game's like, hey, it's just the first one. Everybody's rusty. We'll get in gears eventually, and it just... It never really happened. I think back to the victory over the BC Lions. It was after BC's left tackle went out of the game. Suddenly everything just kind of shifted after that. Not that I really think that had an impact on Trevor Harris directly, but maybe the defense started making a couple of plays. And from there, I guess that just kind of lifted the whole team. But yeah, you had those two anomaly games at BC and at Calgary where it looked like okay, this is the Trevor Harris we all know, and then they just go back to Edmonton and just completely down the tubes. It was so odd. And I know the line has been problematic this year, but they're not totally to blame either.
1: I would agree. Again, I think Trevor Harris, too, what you got to understand is that – he's not going to be like a bully Levi Mitchell or Mike Riley. Who's going to stretch the field on you vertically. He's very much going to test the uh, check down zones and, and, you know, hit the flats and those high completion throws. Like we saw in the 2019 West uh, East semifinals. Sorry. When uh, they crossed over and he put up like, God what looked like 90% completion or something on Montreal and, and sent them home packing. And I'm just not sure where the disconnect was there and that he wasn't able to hit those. And, you know, not a Darrell Walker is very much like a, you know, send him down the sideline and, and let him make a play. And I'm just not sure Harris is the guy to really connect with him on those. I mean, Walker had some success with McLeod, Bethel Thompson, big arm, stretches the field vertically. So I just don't think there was a proper marriage in offensive philosophy and what Trevor Harris's strengths are, which again, surprises the living heck out of me because Elizondo was his offensive coordinator for two or three years back in Ottawa. So I I just – I really didn't understand why everything looks so disjointed. James Wather was playing great great individual performances at the start of the season, even though you guys weren't winning games. But it just seems like there just wasn't a connection there. And, um, you know, I haven't watched much of uh, Cornelius, so I'm not sure where his strengths lie, if if he has a strong arm or not. But, uh, you know, I'm just very perplexed as to why the Harris thing didn't work out.
0: Well, maybe it was just – could never get in a rhythm with the fact he's not very mobile against a line that wasn't playing well. And I also feel like Jamie Elizondo being thrown into the mix so late, it just. I think the receiver struggled to get in sync as well. So even though Harris might have understood more than we think he does, can't really show it because the receivers just don't have that connection yet. But, anyways, Harris is gone, so. You mentioned Cornelius a little bit. Since I've watched him play, my thoughts are he does have a pretty strong arm, and I think he trusts it a little too much. Mm. I think he tries to bullet balls in there where they don't belong, and he's also started to get happy feet in the pocket. If he doesn't see the first or second option open up, he starts trying to get out of there, and we've seen that, especially – one of the Winnipeg games where Jefferson caught up to him, strip sack, turns into a touchdown the other direction. But, I mean, he's a young guy. I have <laughs> felt like he has potential, but he's just not in a great situation. I guess we'll jump into that a little bit more. So, do the Harris and Arbuckle trades surprise you? They do, because
1: I, I'm not used to seeing, like, big – I guess quarterback moves this late in the season. And obviously it's a unique season in that where we are and with 14 games. But I mean, when you go into a season with a guy like Trevor Harris who coming into it, you assume is the second or third or fourth best quarterback in the CFL, depending on who you ask. You wouldn't like, if you would have asked me in August, if I saw Harris being traded, I would have thought you were crazy. Same with Arbuckle who looked like he was being touted as the face of the franchise. McLeod Bethel Thompson was a late addition to what I thought was just an insurance policy because our buck was dealing with um, you know, some hamstring issues. Um, So I just really found that kind of strange. So yeah, I, I was very shocked to see Harris over in Montreal. And uh, again, I'm very curious as to how the offense and that marriage is going to work between what their offensive philosophy is and what Harris's strengths are. Vernon Adams is very much kind of big player Boston. He creates plays with his legs and, uh can be a little turnover prone likes to take his chance with 50-50 balls but very much likes to push the ball downfield. Harris is not that guy. So uh how does that change between, you know, what they're calling, what the play designs are, you know, does Matthew schiltz still get the reins there? I'm not too sure what that's going to look like. From the Elks perspective with Arbuckle, I think some of his strengths are similar to Harris's in that. He likes those high completion throws, likes to push the short and uh intermediate routes. Um, you know, people compared him a bit to Bull Levi Mitchell, but I think Marshall Ferguson said it best on CF perspective that, you know, Bo Levi very much likes to push the ball downfield, hit those sideline shots, hit those deep shots in the seam routes. Arbuckle's not really that guy. So I'm hoping they don't run into an issue where they're expecting Arbuckle to push, stretch the field vertically again. Whereas I think his strengths kind of rely more in the similar strengths that Harris has. But I think Arbuck could get a little more athleticism barring that hamstring holds up. You'll be able to move the pocket a little more.
0: Yeah, that's a good breakdown right there. I was a little surprised by the timing of it all. I've talked about this a little bit on this show before that whenever Harris was shipped out, I thought, all right, this is a full changing of the guard that they're going to try and build with Cornelius as their guy. And then just a couple of weeks later, The Arbuckle trade goes down. Obviously, Toronto, it seemed like he couldn't be kept there affordably, so they shipped him out, and I don't know how much we're going to see of Arbuckle before the end of the year. Let it be said, he is the only quarterback to defeat the Bombers this season, so there's that, but obviously the consistency's just not been there. He threw a couple interceptions against Hamilton, It's kind of weird just how he bounced around going from Calgary in 19, then over to Ottawa, they couldn't sign him, they goes to Toronto. Now he's shipped back out to the West on his fourth team in two seasons. The Kevin Glenn career arc. It's getting there. So this just makes me question, what is this organization's plan with this? Because Jamie Elizondo and Taylor Cornelius, they had time together in the XFL before that league ceased operations, and I thought, okay, we're going to have another year of trying to build around the Cornelius Elizondo duo, but now with Arbuckle coming in, it seems like it could be an insurance policy for the next coach, which makes me once again ask, is Jamie Elizondo a lame duck?
1: I don't think so. I think this move to get Arbuckle was a Hail Mary attempt to save his job. The way I see it is, you know, I think Sunderland's gone either way. I think that hopefully, hopefully, you know, but I think the next uh, GM that comes in, you know, just with how much turnover there's been, he might be inclined to keep Elizondo and Elizondo's pitch to the organization might be, hey, you know, I got two really young quarterbacks. Give me a full off season to work with these guys. We didn't get, you know, many camps. We didn't really get a proper training camp with all the COVID protocols. Let me have this quarterback competition. We have Nick Arbuckle. We have Cornelius, two potential guys to build the franchise around. Let me work this out and uh, see where we can go. And let's, let's build around these two young talents. Um, so I, I kind of saw it as like a job saving, you know, kind of move maybe from Sunderland's perspective too, saying like, Hey, look, you know, I, I'm trying over here. I'm not just sitting here around, but I just think with the other stuff that's been going on, you know, it's, it's tough to justify keeping Sunderland, I think at this point, but uh, yeah, I, I think Elizondo's going to get one more year. I think 2022 will be his make or break season. I don't see him getting fired Sunderland I'm 50-50 on 50, 50 on.
0: Yeah, he was thrown into a really bad situation coming in so late in the game. And there was excitement and expectations around this team just for the return of the league and all that. And I can see how a lot of people would not be happy with what Elizondo has done. But again, just makeshift staff trying to th- throw a team together in all honesty. <sighs> I can't blame him. People's opinion of him throughout the season have, has been really up and down. Like after the two wins, people were thinking, "Yeah, did a really good job in the chess match against Dave Dickinson," and then just in this six-game losing streak, it's the team has just looked lifeless for the most part. And just, I mean, you can't give him all the blame. I think he's. Got something to work with, and I hope he does get another season, like you mentioned. But yeah, he'll be on a short leash regardless. If there were some absolute you-cannot-afford-not-to-hire-this-guy-that-was-interested-in-coaching-the-team, then okay, you might consider it. But otherwise, if you get a new guy, you're right back to where you started, and I don't like that.
1: Yeah, the only thing I could see that name being is Mark Killam. I, I think he really wanted that Edmonton job back in 2020. And, you know, you have a potential to bring in a guy who I know he's a special teams coach, but we've seen it with Michael O'Shea and Craig Dickinson now. Those guys really know how to rally the team as a whole. And they don't necessarily have to specialize in offense or defense. They can leave that to their coordinators. And I think Killam would do a really good job, you know, building a proper culture there. And maybe Elizondo needs another year to do that, right? We can't write him off right away, but keep your eye out for Mark Killam. I think that'd be a really high quality, high character hire that uh, the fans in Edmonton and abroad can rally around.
0: Speaking of that, I don't know how many openings there are really going to be this off season for head coaches because Paula Police in Ottawa, I think he's definitely going to get more time. I don't see BC getting rid of Rick Campbell after one year. And all the other teams are going to be in the playoffs. So, I mean, it's kind of hard to really judge them so quickly. So, I mean, Edmonton might be the only opening, if there are any. (laughs) 100% agree. Right on. I have to ask, did you like the name change going to the Elks? I loved it. I think it was time, just based on everything that was
1: going on. And it was was overdue. But with... With the Elks change, I think it was perfect. I love the logo. It's modern. I love that they kept the colors. That's great. I like the antlers on the helmet. I hate what they did to the uniforms. I I think they're very lifeless in the sense that they just went to the white numbers away from the yellow numbers. They took away even more of the striping and kind of piping they had on the jerseys. I think the jerseys that Edmonton had when they won the Grey Cup in 2015 are amongst the best with like the the shoulder stripes and everything they had there. Mm -hmm. So I love the Elks from a branding perspective. I think it's fresh. I think it gets engages young fans and uh, you can move past the whole controversy with the previous name. I, I just wish they would have done a little more with the uniforms. I was really disappointed to see what essentially looked like green Bay Packer ripoffs. And I know CFL fans hate getting their stuff compared to NFL fans, but that's what it looked like to me. I think with you, what you had in the yellow numbers, um was unique and what you had with the previous kind of trim and everything going on with the jersey was great uh just really hate to see what they did with that but maybe again COVID shortened season could add something to do with that maybe they'll do a proper uniform rollout I'm a uniform nerd I don't know if uh if I come across that way but I love kind of inspecting those things and just seeing what teams do and how they engage their fans and where they bring back throwbacks or come up with new stuff but really like when I saw the Elks uniforms I thought they nailed it They nailed everything with the rebrand up to that point.
0: That's fair. I remember the hype video that they released when they initially announced the name, and I was like, this is how it's done. That was just such a good video. And I remember on Twitter, their official account tweeted at the Packers was like, hey, can we copy your homework (laughs) or something like that? It was great. Yeah. My personal thought after seeing that, I was like, It was like they took the Vikings uniforms and put Packer colors on them. Because you have those stripes on the sleeve and all of that. And just like, I don't mind the look at all. I really don't. Now, the decal on the helmet, I kind of wish they'd kept the double E. I really liked that. And, you know, you have the two different iterations of the elk. One where the antler is on the rest of the logo, and the other where it's a little bit above it. And I just thought that looks kind of goofy, but you know, overall, not too bad. We've certainly seen a lot worse. Yes. That we can be sure of, but yeah, choosing that name tied with the history, winning a gray cup, whenever they were called that decades ago, I thought it was pretty good for that. I remember when they released the seven finalists, my choice was the Eagles. I thought, mm. yeah, it's a little conservative play, but, you know, it works. It just sort of does. Whenever I saw Eclipse and Evergolds, I'm like, what? Who chose these? Or Energy, I thought was strange. It's just
1: like, it sounds like a peewee hockey team's name, Energy. So I, I think they made the right
0: decision. Yeah. At first, I was lukewarm on the Elks, and then I sort of came around on it. And I'm just like, you know what? I'm content. And while part of the reason I chose the team was because of the Eskimos name, I was like, you know, it's not worth it to have this discussion 8 million times. Let's just go ahead. It's just a name. Let's just move to the future. And so, you know, I didn't mind. So, all right, get to the real important part now. So... Give us your prediction for the next two weeks with this home-and-home. What do you think happens?
1: I think the Riders, as a Rider fan here, I got my Homer hat on here. Again, if you want to talk about logos, this kind of looks like a Safeway logo, but I think it's still very well-revered. Anyways, uh, Riders are going to – the Elks are going to make this game in Edmonton a lot closer than it needs to be. I Mm -hmm. think – I just see mistakes kind of coming up. It's just going to be one of those games where – you know, you call it a trap game. I think that's a perfect iteration of what's going to happen here. I see Saskatchewan coming out victorious, but it's kind of going to remind, it's going to leave a bad taste in Ryder fans' mouth. Probably what, like, the BC game did to uh, Toronto fans. You know, they won that game, but y- you left that kind of feeling a little dirty. I think, uh, so it's going to be some kind of close, weird score, like 24-19 Saskatchewan, where things are just a little too close for comfort for the, for the level of competition that uh, they're playing that's no disrespect to your Elks. It's just kind of the way they've been playing this year. Right. Uh, I think for when things go back to Saskatchewan, it'll be the wake-up call they need, and I think they'll handle business. It'll be probably closer to what we saw when Saskatchewan played Toronto uh, in Saskatchewan there, and they and they won that game handily by about 15 or 16 points, I believe. So uh, I have the Riders winning both. That's with and without my homer hat on. But, uh, you know, I think these are must wins for Saskatchewan just to kind of get that confidence, get that train rolling, going to the West semifinal. So my prediction of a loss in the West semifinal doesn't come true, but uh, I don't think we're going to feel especially great coming out of uh, Friday's game in Edmonton. Just, I think it's going to be a little too close.
0: Okay. Personally, I see a split with both of the home teams winning this game. I think You know, just last home game of the season, we're going to go all out, just trying to get one in front of however many home fans show up and get a good game out of Wilder and finally get the monkey off our back a little bit, pull the upset. I remember we were playing Winnipeg at home. It was one of our best games of the season. I really thought, obviously, the opposition was just too much to overcome, but... It made me see the team hasn't thrown in the towel yet. So I say just go out with a bang, give the home fans something to cheer about before final three games on the road. Yeah, I think that I wouldn't be surprised if Saskatchewan lost this game Friday,
1: but I, I think they'll squeak it out. And then the one, like you said, back in Regina should be a pretty clean game. Unless in some weird scenario the Riders clinch second if Calgary loses or something where it falls on their lap and we have Isaac Harker out there, who I like, I I just don't see the Riders uh, losing that one in Regina at all.
0: I'd agree with you on that. Moving to a segment that I've been doing on this show quite a bit, I've talked about quarterback power rankings. And usually I start out at the – Bottom with who I think is number nine, then we'll work our way up to number one. So I've started out with number nine. I'll have the quarterback of Ottawa. Either it's Caleb Evans or Duck Hodges. That offense hasn't been going anywhere all year.
1: I would agree with that. That's who I had on my list as well in front of me.
0: All right. Number eight, going with Taylor Cornelius. I we'll have the exact same thing. All right. Number seven is where things start to get really dicey for me. I have McLeod Bethel Thompson.
1: Ooh, okay. Number seven, I have Nick Arbuckle.
0: Okay, so you had
1: Oh, sorry, that'd be number eight for me, my mistake.
0: Okay.
1: Yeah. Oh no, sorry, whatever. Looking... Yeah, whatever number you're in. Uh are you just looking at starters?
0: Yeah, I was just looking at starters. I may not have made that clear, but Right. Uh, I guess
1: yeah. I'll take out Arbuckle then, and so I had Caleb Evans River Ottawa starting Taylor Cornelius. Okay, then let's go Trevor Harris.
0: Okay. Yeah, I didn't know if if Adams would be back this week or not, but yeah, a lot of it becomes conditional upon that. Mm Hmm. Number six, I'm going with Cody Fajardo. I have uh, Bo Levi Mitchell there right now. I had Levi Mitchell fifth. It was kind of tough to decide between those two. Uh,
1: Jeremiah Mazzoli fifth.
0: Okay. I know that this is sort of ambiguous because I didn't specify whether it's looking at the season as a whole or in this exact moment. That's the thing about power rankings is there is some inherent ambiguity about all of them. But anyways, moving on to number four, I had Vernon Adams. Okay.
1: Uh, With him being injured, I didn't include him on the list. So I have uh, Cody Fajardo at
0: number four. Okay. Number three, I had Mike Riley. Likewise. Number two, I had Masoli or Evans, whoever's under center for Hamilton.
1: Nice. I had McLeod Bethel Thompson there. I think he had a pretty good game, all things considered, against BC. And, the franchise essentially gave him the keys, So I think that's a big confidence boost for him.
0: Yeah, I guess I've just never quite been sold on him. He seems just way too up and down for me. We saw him a couple of weeks ago was one of the down swings. Of course, it could be some selective attribution bias because you'll go by what you see with your own eyes. And I was unable to see the game against BC. So, right. Yeah, makes sense. a little bit of that, but. Obviously, number one, it's not really debatable. Guy leads the league in touchdown passes, passing yards, Zach Kolaris. Yeah, 100% agree. All right. So now let's just go around for this weekend's games. Obviously, we talked about Saskatchewan at Edmonton. We're split on that one. Also, Friday, we got BC at Hamilton. I got the Ticats in that one.
1: I, too, have the tie Cats taking that one.
0: Yeah, I think BC is unfortunately slated to be seventh in the league and miss out on the playoffs. It looks like they have imploded.
1: Yeah, that's weird. Like they, I remember how highly touted that Riders-BC game was, you know, God, it feels like a month and a half ago, I suppose now, when they were like four and three or four and two going into that game. And since they lost that game on that questionable Cody Fajardo sneak that I think was in, Homer hats on, Uh, you know, they've just proceeded to kind of get stomped out of every game they've been in. So it just seems like the team
0: has no confidence or, you know, mojo whatsoever. Yeah. It's really strange because obviously Riley's shown that he's still got it, and people have talked about them having a pretty good young defense. They got some playmakers there. just like, I'm not sure what went wrong. I actually thought BC would be a playoff team this year. Mm
1: Mm-hmm the way she goes sometimes it just yeah it hasn't come together for them and uh i think they got to figure out the mike riley nathan rourke thing i think Rourke's showing some flashes that they're gonna have a decision to make next year
0: i think riley gets another year but 23 it might be rourke's time to take over Mm. but now moving on to saturday we've got Toronto going to Ottawa. I'm taking the boatmen in this one. Yeah, I too will be taking uh, Toronto on that one. I don't trust Ottawa in any circumstance at any point this season. Unless they're playing it. Yeah. Yeah, going against the Elks seems to be their superpower.
1: There we go, eh? The Elks kryptonite.
0: Well, I don't know. Not sure if you can point it out as the Elks being a weakness whenever it's not really, they don't have a strength. Yeah, (laughs) fair enough. (laughs) But anyways, last game of the weekend is perhaps the most interesting. We got Montreal going to Winnipeg. Now, if Vernon Adams were totally healthy, I would actually give Montreal a chance of pulling off this upset, but even if he does play even a little bit, he's not going to be up to what he used to be and just, at home, that Bombers defense is on another level. So I wanted to pick the upset, but I just couldn't rationalize doing it. Same thought in my head. I, I wanted so
1: badly to pick Montreal, and I wasn't even sure like Vernon Adams. I didn't know he was that close to returning. I figured he was done for the year with like, what was it, a shoulder
0: injury that he suffered? Oh, so, man. I can't remember off the top of my head. Yeah.
1: And so I thought, okay, I don't trust Harris. He's kind of not playing with a lot of confidence right now. Matthew Schultz is a little green. So I, I for sure picked Winnipeg, but I if, if Adams can be like 80% of who he is, I'd be more inclined to pick an upset, but I don't even know if he'll be like half the QB he is if he's coming back earlier than anticipated.
0: Well, that sounds good. Now, please remember to check out True Green and Gold on YouTube, True Green and Gold, and on Twitter at TGAGpod. And, Stephen, where can they find your work?
1: Yeah. You can find me on Twitter at Steve Bolin 22 and you can find the amateur agency on Twitter at amateur agency. Uh, We've been taking a little hiatus since July, just a little mental health break Uh, personal lives are getting a little busy, but uh, you know, in 2022, we could be uh, back on the rails, but I'm always tweeting about football. If you want to give me a follow at, uh, at Steve Bolin B O L E N 22 on Twitter and uh, love to chat football. So any uh, discussion you guys want to throw my way or, make fun of my rider takes. I'm, I'm here for it. And uh, certainly uh, really appreciative for you having me on and having the chance to chat football. It's uh, been a long time since I hopped on the mic and so uh, definitely was super excited when you reached out and uh, I'm going to encourage all my friends to check out and followers to check out your podcast and work.
0: All right. Definitely appreciate the shout out and I definitely appreciate you coming on. Thank you once again for tuning in. We'll see you next time.